1: the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news as well as insight and analysis into all the subjects you're talking about in football I'm in McGarry, and with me as always is Duncan Castles. It's your questions answered and you have been tweeting us like a chirpy Christmas robin in the last couple of days uh, to to ask us all sorts of different uh, things about your own club and other clubs. But of course, we will combine that with all the latest news as well. And remember, you get it exclusively here on the Transfer Window. Duncan, we're going to start with Tottenham. Um, a club uh, that you have already revealed on the pod recently are are looking to recruit players in the January window. And considering that, the expectation is that there will be probably a lot less business done, uh, mostly because of the economic climate due due to COVID um, and also because clubs are... um, Weary of spending in the window, but to be fair, Daniel Leverage has never been scared to spend in the January window. He's got quite a good record of doing business. Um, Now, we do have a question from our listener, Daniel Wickford, which I'll read out. And then I'll just give you a couple of uh, pointers on news that we have as well. Daniel has asked, Tottenham's January transfer window will leave you alive for some incomings to help Tottenham and Josie's pursuit of, finally crossed fingers, I'm guessing as a Tottenham fan, winning something this year. Well, inf- information that we have is that Spurs will be, uh, their finances will be augmented um, to a degree by a second installment from the transfer of Christian Eriksen to Inter Milan, which will help offset any spend that they do. Duncan, you already, as I said, told us that there were positions where Jose Mourinho wanted to stre- strengthen. Uh, can you bring us up to date and give us any more insight on that?
0: Yeah, there's two areas that Mourinho thinks that if Tottenham want to take this opportunity they have this season to to win a trophy and you know if everything goes their way, they now are in a position where they have a chance to win the Premier League because other clubs are struggling, because they've had a good start. They're at top at present, obviously, this week's game against Liverpool. It's going to be an important one in terms of retaining the momentum of the of the decent, unbeaten run they're on at the moment. But Mourinho's trying to make a case to Daniel Levy as we are in a good position here. We are, in a sense, ahead of schedule. The, the plan when Mourinho was brought to the club was to turn them from nearly made it into a team that can deliver trophies. With Mourinho adding that cutting edge, adding that experience, vast experience he has of winning trophies, adding the mentality. I, I think um, the Amazon documentary we mentioned a few times was very good at uh, detailing the way in which Mourinho worked with those Tottenham players when he came in to the group and the focus he had on. You have to go and win these games and be the, the stronger individuals and be the more competitive indi- individuals and stop being the nice guys um, if you want to go to the next stage from, from where you've been for the last X number of years. And, and actually, you look at Tottenham's record. They have two League Cups to show for the last 29 years of football, which is appalling considering the, the quality of players they've had. Um, during that period, and, and the quality of football they played during that period. But his view is they need a centre-back um, to allow him to play higher up the field against stronger opponents to move um, the defensive line closer to the opposition, and that's so they want a centre-back who is quicker over the ground um, and can compare with one of his preferred um, centre-back partnership of Toby Aldo-Vereld and Eric Dyer and give them a bit more latitude there and a left footed centre back to help with the circulation of the play but also he would like another centre midfielder added to the squad Um, and the type of centre midfielder he's looking for is a box to box player, someone who can nip the play from back to front, he's very happy for obvious reasons with what Pierre-Emil Heuberg has, has added to the midfield, made it more secure and more structured. But Hoiberg is the player who sits in front of the defence and does that, adds that extra insurance policy and, and keeps the game flowing. But he feels that when Tottenham have possession um, against sides who sit in uh, against them, and I think we will see more sides sitting in against them because they have to realise that, that this team is. Kind of in the image of, of uh, some of Jose Mourinho's best teams, it's, it's superb on the counter-attack. It's very quick. Um, they have very decisive individuals up front in Harry Kane and uh, Hume Son. And if you want to play them by attacking them, you take big risks. However, if you want to play them by sitting back, you don't take as many risks. They can break up opponents down, but it's harder for them to do that. So Mourinho would like a guy in the squad who can help bring the ball from the defence, help um, break down teams who sit in against them and give them more tactical options. And that, I'm told, is the position he's he's concentrating more on, um, convincing Levy to invest at a reasonable level to give them the best opportunity of of taking advantage of where they are this season. He's not proposing... Um, 40 million, 50 million buys because he knows the chances of that happening are extremely unlikely given it's Tottenham and given uh, a COVID environment. But he is saying, look, this is a market where you we might be able to find a player we can get at a cheaper price than normal relative to their quality because clubs are under financial strain. Let's go and do it now. Get him in now. Get him in for this window and get him in for the remainder of the season and see if we can um, do what Tottenham supporters want and, and get silverware to the naming
1: rights lane. Well, I was actually speaking uh, to a contact, Duncan, um, who's very close to Spurs and uh, I was having this very discussion with him and he confirmed that um, that Spurs were prepared to spend and invest in January. To a realistic extent was the phrase he used when I asked him uh, how much is realistic in uh, in pounds or euros, and he said, "Well, you know, Daniel, it'll be as realistic as he thinks it is when it comes to what he offers for the player." But as I said, they have a quite an interesting history of doing business in January, um, and obviously, I think Daniel Levy has been convinced by Jose Mourinho, um, and probably more importantly convinced by results and the consistency of performance under Mourinho to believe that, look, this could be, you know, our chance. Remember, they had a similar opportunity under Murcio Pochettino when Leicester City went on to take advantage of other clubs underperforming uh, and winning the league then. And uh, Spurs came close, but not close enough. But with Mourinho, they have a born winner. Uh, in charge someone who can instill what I always call that extra 5% that mentality into players who have yet to win a Premier League title uh, but he can give them that self-belief he can certainly motivate them and manage them properly as we've seen already and he did it with Chelsea when they won the first title in 50 years in his first spell there in 2004-2005 and I just see a little glint in his eye that I think he'd lost for a while uh, during his stint at Manchester United um, there's something you know there's a, something more like the old Jose going on here um, but another quick question from one of our listeners Duncan on Spurs before we move on and that's from Just Sunny who's at Just Sunny and he says at what point does style of play at Spurs stop being the narrative and everyone starts to appreciate what it is they're actually doing. Why is it not questioned with other managers and teams? Just asking. Look, I think
0: it's a, it's, that's a fair question to ask. And I think it is the case that there is a, a kind of hackneyed storyline about Mourinho that um, he parks the bus Um, whenever he has the opportunity to do so, sometimes when he doesn't even have the opportunity to do so. And they don't play, his teams don't play exciting football. Um, And that has been a criticism for a long time. It's been a very um, much repeated argument, which I think actually stems at first from his period at Real Madrid, ironically, because the Real Madrid team, that he won the spanish title with and stopped that run of pep guardiola's barcelona actually set um a, a set of all-time attacking records in the spanish league yet the perception is and you see people writing about it and talking about it is that all they did all that team was were destroyers um team a team that defended that that, that played anti-football and uh, much of the criticism, which is quite remarkable given the the number of goals they scored and the wins they they put together. I think the recent run of games has also had an impact on this because we've watched them play Manchester City, Chelsea and Arsenal. And those are three games in which Mourinho was always going to play percentages because that's what he does when he plays those bigger opponents. He will pick the system that he thinks gives the team the best opportunity to get at more points than their big opponents over the course of those games. And if he gets into a situation like he did against Chelsea where it's balanced and you can gamble and, uh, and try and win the game but end up losing it, his tendency, given that Tottenham were at the top of the league at that point, given that they had an advantage over Chelsea in points term at that point, and albeit early in the season, given that he wants to keep the psychological momentum of not being beaten, of not conceding goals, is to say, right, let's sit and be defensive-minded, but look for our opportunity on the counter-attack, because we know our counter-attack's very good. Um, I think uh, some statistics came out this week that uh, Harry Kane has had more um involvement in goals, so assists and goals, than any other Premier League player in the time that Mourinho's been manager. And obviously Kane is not the only one who's performing for him. Son has been exceptional during that period. And you've got to add in, Kane was injured for a, for a big chunk of that time as well. But he will wait. And, it, and if you watch that Chelsea game back again, Chelsea had the better of the second half. They had more attacks. But Tottenham had a clear-cut opportunity to win the match just before full time, that better finishing would have resulted in a 1-0 win. Um, But percentage wise, he comes out of Manchester City, Chelsea, Arsenal, unbeaten, no goals conceded, uh, seven points out of nine taken. Now, a neutral isn't going to enjoy all of those games and they're not going to necessarily enjoy when Tottenham score early in a match against Arsenal and and sit back and let Arsenal come to them because Tottenham defend well and Arsenal don't have good chances. And as a neutral, it's not as enjoyable a watch as as it could be. But from the perspective of Tottenham, from the perspective of Mourinho, from the perspective of the players, it's three points. It's a North London derby win. It's stay at the top of the table. Um, as he responded in in one of the press conferences after that game, because of, of the sort of build-up of... The style of play isn't good and he won't win the league um, playing that style of football. He said, if you don't like it, don't watch it, which... You know, It might not go down well with a, a lot of people in football these days because it's an entertainment business. But from Mourinho's perspective, he was brought into the club not to play pretty football. They'd been playing pretty football for a long time. His mandate was to come in and turn them into winners. And he's using the tools he has. He's using his assessment of the best way to set up that squad to achieve that. And I, and I think listeners' question is relevant there because that really... I guess it depends on your perspective of football. If you if you treat it as an entertainment business, if you watch it and you just want to look for um, lots of attacking play and lots of goals and lots of mistakes and and spills, then you're not going to like the way Mourinho plays. Uh, in those particular moments, you might enjoy quite a lot of the way they play in other games. Um, and when they score early and 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 some of the 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 football they produce to score goals, but you probably won't enjoy. Those big games. But if you're a professional and you respect um, winning football, achieving the job a manager is supposed to do, you can see that he's taken resources which aren't at the same level as Manchester City and, and Liverpool's, and he's taken a group of players who haven't won and he's moving them in the right direction. Um, so his job as a manager and, and, his, and what he's being asked to do by Daniel Levy is to do that. It's not, it's not to um, entertain um, Graham Souness or um, Roy Keane or whoever happens, Tim Sherwood, whoever
1: happens to be in the, the commentary box that day. Going in the wrong direction, Duncan, are Spurs' North London rivals, Arsenal defeat uh, against Burnley last weekend saw them uh, create a very unwanted statistic which is they have now made their worst start uh, in the top flight for over 60 years under Mikel Arteta. We've got a question here uh, from Isai Miles who says, does the Arsenal board have a plan with what's going on now? Now before I ask you to answer, do they have a plan, Rod Duncan? Uh, I'd just like to remind our listeners, because we pride ourselves on bringing you the news, as you know, before anyone else does. And of course, a couple of weeks ago, we were the podcast who revealed that Edu is backing Arteta to the hill and indeed is trying to persuade Stan Kronka and the other directors at the club to invest in the January window. Uh, We can also tell you that Lucas Torreira, Um, looks likely to have his loan deal at Atletico Madrid terminated uh, in January returning him to the Emirates but there is also interest from both Torino and Fiorentina who tried to get a deal done for Torreira last summer Um, but I think Arsenal would be open to putting terror out on loan again so that obviously they can take down the wage bill and hopefully get an option or an obligation to buy at one of those clubs for a player who's clearly not wanted by Arteta. But back to the plan, Duncan. Is there a plan? I mean, the plan seems to be at the moment, stick.
0: Stick, Yeah. Look, you gave one of the statistics there. There's a lot of really bad statistics about this. Arsenal start to the season, you're losing four consecutive home league games for the first time in 61 years. 12 hours and 32 Premier League minutes without a goal from open play. Uh, 12 games played, four wins, one draw. Worst start to league season, 46 years. Um, 10 goals from 12 Premier League games, the lowest they've had since 1981-82. Season and and then another one I think which is interesting is that they've had six Premier League red cards since Arteta's appointment, which is almost a year ago now, which is double that of any other side in the Premier League. Um, I think yeah, you're you're right to point out the the plan, at least the plan as expressed by Edu, who remember was instrumental in bringing Arteta into the club and has a huge amount invested in it working for them is no change Um, things are working well behind the scenes if you can see what's going on at the training ground you would understand that it's not being reflected in results we have to be patient with them Um, I think he makes in this quite long uh, interview he's given uh, defending where they are I think he makes a, a, a credible point about the preseason challenge that Mikel had um, with COVID, uh, and saying three months without football matches, a lot of things changing the club. He started and stopped, and when he started to get an understanding of the squad, he stopped again. He didn't get a sequence to know everyone properly. It would be really unfair to Mikel to say something about that because the year was so challenging for everyone, be even more for Mikel who just arrived at the club, and and I think. It is correct that if you don't have a proper pre-season as a manager, it's harder for you. You talk to coaches and you talk to them about coming into clubs and they know they would rather avoid coming into clubs during the course of a season. They would rather come uh, in pre-season where they have time to get to know the players. They have time to implement a training regime without games on on a regular basis. Um, in normal circumstances, and and get the players to understand them, and get get the uh, an understanding of those players and the way the clubs work. And Arteta obviously hasn't had that. Now nobody's had a proper preseason this year, but um, most of the Premier League managers have had a preseason at some point with their club. Um, I mean, this it's actually quite a remarkable statistic, but we're getting very close to an entire year without any manager being sacked and replaced in the Premier League. Um, David Moyes, Carlo Ancelotti, Mikel Arteta, Jose Mourinho are the, are the four um, shortest serving coaches. And Moyes is just 14 days away from a, a full year in the job. And obviously he has the benefit of it being second spell at the club. Um, if I was to ask you where Uli Solskjaer, who's considered to be quite a recent appointment, where he is on the list of um, managers who uh, Premier League managers in, t- in terms of length of tenure, where would you think Solskjaer is in, in the amongst the twenty? With obviously Moyes being the twentieth in, in
1: the shortest tenure, second.
0: <laughs> no, he's tenth. He's tenth, which okay. uh, which I think is you know it's quite surprising he's as high up the list. As that. But back to Arteta, I I, I think Edu's right to to mention that he's not had a proper pre season. Um, Talked to someone who has worked with Arteta during his period at, at Arsenal today, and he said, Look, he, he's surprised that it's gone this badly wrong so quickly in the second season. He highlighted that. Um, that Thomas Partey injury has has been an issue for them because Partey is, has been a key signing and some something that Arsenal put a lot of emphasis on on bringing to the club and and wanted to kind of rebuild the midfield around and and, and missing him has has been a difficulty. He said look, Obama Young losing confidence up front has been a problem. He also said that if you look at what Arteta achieved in the first season, he did a lot of it by playing in what would be considered to be a non-Arsenal way. So winning the FA Cup, um, getting results against Manchester City, Chelsea um, and other top teams, they did it by playing tight, um, disciplined, defensive football and playing on the the counter-attack. And he he said, look, he's done a good job of building a defensive structure there and getting them more organised. But what he hasn't been able to implement is the attacking side of it and the ability to be more fluid when they have possession and be um, more unpredictable for the opposition, which if you think about the way Arteta works and that adoption of the Guardiola model, which which involves a lot of direction of the players, a lot of disciplining of them to be in the right areas of the field at the right time, that's what he's been working on the training ground. and, And it's easier... I think to implement the defensive side of that than the attacking side, particularly when you've got um, a, a lower quality of players than you have at Manchester City. You know, we we eulogise what Guardiola has done um, throughout his career, but he has always had the best cadre of players in the division to work with. So that kind of super disciplined manner of directing the players, telling them exactly where they need to be in the field most of the time, I think it's easier to implement when you've got the best talent who have um, the ability to add a little to it and will be winning games on a consistent basis. So that the, that, that element where you start questioning what's, uh, whether the manager and, and his, you know, his hardcore managerial style and his demanding managerial style is good for you or not. I think they also have a problem in that he has a very big squad there. Um, if you look at the first team squad at Arsenal, it's 31 players. Now, managing a group of 31 players is difficult at the best of times. If you've got someone like Mesut Ozil in the group who's sniping away on social media um, and in interviews in the background, it makes it worse. If, if you've got a group that aren't performing again it makes it worse because those guys you leave out of the first team or leave out of the, the match day squad and there's going to be ten or more of them each week will get upset and they will cause problems in the background. So I think that there's a range of stuff there and I understand why Edu is is backing Arteta uh, because he's his man and he has a lot invested in the process. I think Arsenal have quite a lot invested in the process. What will be interesting is is to what extent the American ownership of Arsenal are prepared to put up with such underperformance, particularly as the supporters start coming back into the stadium and they have that opportunity to express their discontent at the way the team is playing and the results they're delivering at the moment.
1: Support not just from Edu, but also on Tuesday, Pep Guardiola gave his support to his former assistant, Mikel Arteta, with a very um, odd uh, phrase. Duncan, he said that Mikel was one of the was the best manager he'd ever worked with, despite the fact that when he was with Manchester City, he wasn't a manager. This is his first job. Now I know I'm picking at semantics there, but still, um, I look at that and think. Maybe the other side of it, which is maybe it's because he's never been a manager, which he is actually finding this more of a challenge than perhaps he expected it to be, even though he obviously knows Arsenal as a club, from playing there for many years. and um, But I suppose having someone like Guardiola on your side saying publicly, as, cause, because as we know, Guardiola is fairly reticent about talking about any other club or any other players. Um, he normally just declines those kind of questions, but obviously wanted to give support to his friend uh, and also back him to succeed. Um, I just wonder if Arteta's been on the phone to Pep saying, how, how do I solve this? Well, it's interesting you mentioned
0: the fridge manager because one person I talked to said he felt that Arteta might have made a mistake in demanding the manager's title rather than the head coach title so early in his time at Arsenal. Um, you know, to be his, his reasoning was to be a manager of a club of that dimension is a, an extremely demanding job. You're asking for more control. You're uh, demanding more control over the construction of the squad. Uh, it might have been more sensible for him to, to stay as a head coach and allow other people to deal with the, the extra dimension of, of the job that comes into being a manager, given that, as you just pointed out, he has never been a manager before. So he's learning, absolutely learning on the job. He's learning on the job at one of the biggest, most prominent clubs in world football. And he's learning on the job at uh, one of the biggest, most prominent clubs in world football who everyone knew had substantial problems when they came in. And he hasn't had the experience of dealing with that. He doesn't even have that a huge amount of experience of being an assistant coach. His period as an assistant coach isn't a particularly long one, and it's spent at um, <laughs> the club was probably the easiest setup, the most supportive setup you can possibly have in football. Talked many times about how Abu Dhabi have done everything possible to mould that club to present. Guardiola with the best possible conditions for them to dominate English football and to dominate European football, which is their their dual target. So obviously Arteta has had the experience of being a player in different environments, but his experience of of coaching has has only been at Manchester City. Um, And maybe he just, he, he made the mistake of thinking that the Cronkies would be like Abu Dhabi Um, Because they had decided, and and they came for him for a second time, um, okay, they changed their mind first time around and went for Unai Emery, but because they decided to come and get him, that they would make substantial changes and he would have the kind of blanket support that Guardiola had at at City. That was never going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen. It's a much harder job than Manchester City and um, I think the inexperience is is coming into play, but he does have this COVID protection because, as, as I pointed out, nobody is sacking Premier League managers at the moment. I just I was talking to one um, coach earlier today, and he said uh, COVID has been the vaccination for coaches. It's uh, it's it's kept them secure from the sack because because clubs. Uh, I've decided to, that they don't want to uh, engage in the cost of, of dismissing coaches at present and uh, and they've stuck with them for, for a far longer period than we've ever seen in, in
1: uh, I think, in the, the entire history of the Premier League. I think that would be right to say. I'm just wondering, Duncan, if you've been on the phone to Big Sam again and he gave you that <laughs> stat about uh, managers not being sacked uh, <laughs> as he waits in the wings with the Granada keys poised to fire the old boy up and find his next job uh as you pointed out
0: big sam desperately hoping that the covid vaccine fails when it comes to premier league (laughs) jobs yeah
1: (laughs) i wouldn't put it past him well as you pointed out duncan no sackings in the premier league but definitely in the bundesliga as i'm sure many of our listeners uh know uh And because Borussia Dortmund sacked Lucien Favre last weekend after a 5-1 defeat, um, Trevi Seven, Trevor, uh, a regular on the Transfer Window podcast uh, Twitter feed, has said, Dortmund sacked their manager. I noticed they're fifth in the league, six points behind the leaders. Manchester United see no crisis in there, being eighth in the league, five points behind the leaders. Dumped out of the Champions League as well. Would you say Dortmund have bigger ambitions than United? (laughs)
0: <laughs> Look, he, he makes a he makes a fair point there in terms of uh, where they are relative to each other. Um, they're Dortmund are five points behind second place Bayern, which you would think is actually the benchmark of, of what they have to attain if they're if they're going to win the Bundesliga. Um, Nineteen points from eleven games. Manchester United twenty points from eleven games. Um, uh, it was a 5 1 defeat that saw Favre lose his job. Solskjaer's already suffered a 6 1 defeat this season. Uh Dortmund goal difference of plus eight. Manchester United's plus two. Um and I think more importantly, Manchester United out of the Champions League group after two um amateur decisions from Solskjaer. So basically out because of Uligun or Solskjaer. Whereas Dortmund won their Champions League group and, and won it quite comfortably Favre's had a bit longer in the job um, he's had 30 months as compared to to Solskjaer's 24 months um, but he has during that period recorded the highest points average of all Dortmund coaches um, 2.09 uh, over the, the course of his time and, and Solskjaer's obviously a long way behind that there's certainly a contrast there I mean it, it, it is obviously unfair to do to say Dortmund have sacked their coach, why aren't Manchester United sacking their coach when they're getting similar or worse results? That you have to add in the context always um, and the context that that the players were unhappy with um, Favre's management, uh, I think is relevant here. They felt um, that the way they played had to change. Um, Interestingly, the complaints are about Dortmund's inability to break down opponents when they had possession of the ball, like Manchester United, what they're really good at is counter-attacking, um, and that's where they're getting their better results. But when other teams sat in against them, they would they would have great difficulties building the play to to beat lesser opponents. Um, so, so the context there you have to to separate out. But certainly, um, Dortmund's ambition is to win the league. Uh, and and to go far in the the Champions League, they have a, a different context, in that they are a club that buys um, to sell. Uh, Manchester United are certainly not that, but um, you have Manchester United who who have a manager who came into the season saying that third place would be a a good outcome. Um, you have a, a history from the the owners. That Champions League qualification is the, the critical factor. It's when managers fail to qualify for the Champions League or look like they're going to fail to qualify for the Champions League that they get the sack. Um, so there, there's definitely a contrast there. And, you know, I think there's an element of, uh, of truth in what Trevi says that uh, Dortmund seem to have more ambition at present uh, in how they set up their club than Manchester United do.
1: Is there a amb- big ambition big enough that they would approach Murcio Pochettino to take over?
0: You'd have to say it'd be, I hadn't thought about that, but you have to say it would be an opportunity for them at present. I, as we've mentioned on the podcast before, Pochettino was keen to get back in work and he didn't expect to have to wait this long to get back in and work. And it's a
1: big club, Duncan, and a very good league as well.
0: Yeah. Um, I don't think Pochettino speaks German. I don't know if you you know about that. So um, that would be a handicap for him. But yeah, all things being equal, you would think if you were Dortmund, it would be worth a phone call and a discussion with Pochettino to just see if you can tempt him and say, look, are you not tired of waiting for Manchester United or Real Madrid or Paris Saint-Germain to actually come and hire you? Here's a job. Here's a very talented group of players. Here is a mandate we need to be able to uh, attack in a different way and build the play in a different way we think you're very good at it we know you think you're very good at it do you fancy it you could you know you can chance your arm and get him in the same way that um Tottenham managed to get Mourinho when he was lined up to take over from Zidane um, and was being advised to 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 take over from Zidane and 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 Mourinho was tired of waiting for a job and liked the idea of Tottenham and was convinced to take it. Um, sometimes you just got to strike when the opportunity is available to
1: you as a football club. Just a shame for our friend Big Sam that the COVID quarantine rules mean that he won't be able to get the grad across the channel uh, in order to get the interview at Dortmund. Um, one other candidate, it struck me, Duncan, was one of the um, coaches who for a while was a favourite for the Bar and Munich job before Hansi Flick got it full-time, and that's Ajax coach Eric Ten Hag. Uh, I just wonder if he might be tempted uh, by the idea of going to Dortmund, again, uh, because of the size of club, similar philosophy to Ajax. Uh, he does speak German as far as I'm aware as well, so that would be an advantage. Well, I think Dortmund's position is they're going to stick with the assistants till the end of the season before
0: making a decision. A final decision on that so obviously that, those kind of um, temporary appointments are always flexible if results continue to go the, the wrong way um, so Ten Hag, yes I was very keen to go to Bayern Munich and go to the Bundesliga again um, Dortmund have that position at the moment where they can go and, uh, and try and take Um, these coaches uh, before other bigger clubs move in and make appointments
1: themselves, if they want to go that that route. And just quickly, Duncan, an interesting take from Cavo, who's at Cavo 1972. Is the cult of the manager bigger at Manchester United, thanks to Busby stroke Fergie, than at any other club? And is this skewing United fans' opinion with Solskjaer, i.e. plenty of fans still plea for Solskjaer to be given a chance? I think he's referring to Gary Neville there, when he quite clearly has been given a very fair chance already.
0: Well, as we pointed out early on the pod, he's he's now number 10 in longevity in the Premier League. Um, he is just coming up for two years in the job. Um, I would argue definitely that he's, uh, he's had a, a very fair chance and um, as one of our listeners pointed out this week if you look at where they are this Premier League season 20 points after 11 games is exactly the same total as Manchester United had in Mourinho's um, unacceptable third season so this message of progress that is coming out loud and clear from Ed Woodward um, on a repeated basis isn't really represented in the performance numbers um you know you've got manchester united fans saying if liverpool and tottenham draw on wednesday night and if we win our game in hand then we'll only be x points off the top and um that's progress well it is progress compared to the the um the last and 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 solskjaer's first full season as a manager, but I think the the thing Woodward and Solskjaer have done more effectively than anything else is lower standards of expectations amongst Manchester United fans. Um, Another statistic, since his permanent appointment um, in March uh, 2019, he is sixth in the Premier League points total behind Liverpool, Manchester City, Chelsea, Leicester and Tottenham. Um, with ninety points from fifty-five games, Liverpool during that period have had one hundred and forty-two from fifty-six. Manchester City one hundred twenty-three from fifty-five. So you know they're they're a long way off during that period. Um, you look at how he played against Manchester City at the weekend. Um, he basically set up with exactly the kind of strategy that you would expect Josie Mourinho. To play as Manchester United manager and strategy did use as Manchester United manager against Guardiola's sides, which is not to take risks, play a very tight midfield with, with two holding midfielders and, and even Pogba playing in quite a, um, a retreated position um look for goals at counter on counter attacks but particularly in set pieces which they actually did very well i think they were unlucky not to score at set pieces um victor Lindelof, in particular had really good movement from set pieces and luke shaw's delivery from from corner kicks was was excellent um but basically sit in look for the nil nil and and try and get a goal in the break was the way he played um Mourinho was killed for playing that kind of style at Manchester United because it was considered to be unacceptable. Solskjaer doesn't get that. And then he comes out after the game and says that was his best, the best performance of a Manchester United side against City during his time at the club, which, um, given that they'd beaten City on more than one occasion, was surprising and given that it was a pretty insipid performance. Um, in most areas and certainly not what you'd expect of a Manchester United team who are supposedly going the Manchester United way and talk about their DNA and their and their genetics all the time, or at least their manager does. But to the caller's point, I think he's right. I think there is an element of, of the history of Manchester United being in Solskjaer's favour because of Sir Alex Ferguson's long tenure because of the difficulties he had at the start of his time at Manchester United. Lots of supporters calling him for, for him to be sacked. The club sticking with him and, and him then being the most successful manager of, of Manchester United's history. So you do have a culture there of give the guy time, um, it will come good in the end. Uh, but I mean, the comparison's a, a strange one to make because the, the state of the club and and the t- status of Manchester United as a footballing team when Ferguson took over is completely different to the 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 status and the, the economic power of Manchester United when Solskjaer took over. And and then there's the obvious contrast which is Ferguson had a, a hugely successful career uh, in Scottish football with Aberdeen winning European trophy, winning multiple Scottish titles unfortunately, given I was a Dundee United supporter uh, and, and living in Aberdeenshire at the time and having to put up with, uh, with that success from, from Ferguson. Um, fit like, but, man, fit like. <laughs> but he, Ferguson, you had a proven product there. You knew he was a good manager. Solskjaer doesn't have that track record. He's now been a manager for 10 years. And, uh, and the best he's achieved are titles in Norway. Um, uh, you know, a disastrous spell in, in, in charge of Cardiff City and when you look at it dispassionately when you talk to other people specialists in football about it they find it bizarre the, that Solskjaer one got that job and two remains in the job because he didn't have the CV and from his decision making and, and, uh, and actions as a coach you can see he doesn't
1: have the, the qualities Um, to be in a job of of that status. Well, you referred to there, Duncan, uh, that was the uh, much anticipated and hyped Manchester derby of last weekend, which in the end drew only muted uh, kind of uh, sort of uh, references with regards to how People uh, viewed it as being a board draw and obviously uh, not the most entertaining match they had seen. Uh, Dave Roebuck, uh, another one of our listeners, has uh, got straight to the point and said, What's happened to Manchester City? The most expensive squad in the history of the game, the best paid manager of all time, and they are workmanlike at best. Is that fair? I think they were extremely
0: pragmatic. Um, in a way that we've rarely seen from Pep Guardiola in that match. I You could clearly see that Guardiola had been hurt by the wins Solshar had inflicted on him last season, playing you know, low block um, and using fast forwards to score goals on the counter-attack. And Guardiola set out his team to avoid that. So you rarely see a, a Manchester City team play with such a deep defensive line. Um, with two holding midfielders, two destroyers in front of them. Um, what I was surprised about was the gap that Guardiola allowed to be left between Kevin De Bruyne and the the defence and those two holding midfielders. So you often saw um, De Bruyne a- a- ahead of Gabriel Jesus. He was playing as a number 10, but he was so advanced, he was ahead of Gabriel Jesus a lot of the time, which meant it was difficult for him to create the play, even if he wanted to. And you were relying on Rodri uh, and Fernandinho to, to get the ball through to him. And you could see De Bruyne's uh, frustration. He was expressing his frustration during the game at, at the delivery of passes. And basically, they, they were then became their best creative outlook, became Jean Cancelo uh, from left back playing on, on the, the wrong side. So, you know, you can say that's a mark of respect from Guardiola. To, to Solskjaer's team um, you can say it was pragmatic he didn't want to get beaten by them again um, I think there's also an element of missing personnel um, Sergio Aguero not being available is damaging for them because they are not converting as many of the chances as they create and although you can be critical of the way Guardiola played that match over the course of the game Given the number of chances they did create, even though they weren't a fluent side, they did make enough to win it. So, if his players had been more efficient in front of goal and they missed some good chances, they would have come out of that match with a win. So, I, I think he picked a, a reasonable, if cautious, strategy. It might be a good sign for Manchester City in the Champions League that he's prepared to be pragmatic in that way. But they do—they are missing a creativity. Um, that they've had previously Uh, and I think part of it also will be the defensive issues they would had coming into the season. Those he has managed to sort out. I think that was a six straight clean sheet but they're not where they were previously. There's a good deal of evolution and uh, additions of of style and attacking play that will have to be added to that if they're going to if they're going to be realistic contenders for this year's Premier League.
1: It's an obvious thing to say, Duncan, but um, sometimes the things that are obvious are are that for a reason, and that's um, in the past when City were struggling, when they needed a game breaker, when they needed a goal, uh, when they needed to unlock a defence or pick a pass, possession was always deferred to David Silva, of course left at the end of last season and speaking to a couple of people close to the city dressing room um some of the players are talking amongst themselves and saying you know we just haven't replaced them. you know Ferran Torres is a, is a very uh interesting exciting talent um, but he's he's a replacement um more uh, uh not for David Silva that's for sure um and i think when you when things aren't going what, the way you want them to or the way you believe or they should be going or the way you, uh you expect them to um footballers in my experience tend to not look in the mirror and instead look to other reasons as to why things uh, are not as good as they should be because they they're not very good at taking responsibility for themselves there are some who will do that, and mostly they are the natural leaders in any team. But there's many more who will simply point the finger at circumstances, other players, team selections, tactics, manager, et cetera, et cetera. And I think with Manchester City, there's definitely a feel about there being, ai don't know, they're they're not as fluent. There's almost a disconnect between the middle and final third. Uh, And obviously Sergio Aguero being stop-start season with injuries. Uh, Gabriel Jesus, again, very talented player, but nowhere near the goal conversion rate that Aguero has. And so, again, another reason why players will look at each other and themselves and are in, at the team's selections, et cetera, and think, yeah, we're not going to win this one. So Pep being pragmatic, especially in the situation they find themselves where they are underperforming and they can't afford to lose a derby, Remember, they lost on three occasions last season. Um, They don't want to be losing that game. And I think Guardiola has been quite, I think, cunning and clever to realise that a defeat to United could possibly be more damaging to their season, uh, given that we're coming into that part of uh, the campaign where the fixture congestion is fairly serious uh, and... Traditionally, when you come out the other side of this particular part of the season, and by that I mean, after the FA Cup, third round and then into the middle of January, the table tends to have settled down, and you get an idea of who the genuine contenders for the title are. And I think Guardiola, from what I'm told, has been quite dismayed by how poor his team have been in certain matches, um, and so playing it safe was probably the right idea. Look, they clearly
0: missed Sané. They missed him last season as well um, with that ability he has to, to break packed defences, um, the pace uh, and, and uh, the creation of, of balls across the uh, penalty area. Of course, that sort of box behind the six-yard box where a lot of Manchester City's best um, opportunities come when they're, they're functioning well. I think Rodri in centre midfield is not the the creative force um, that that they they need in that position. And if you pair him with Fernandinho and you 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 take De Bruyne out of the system and you don't use Bernardo Silva, then they don't have that um, ability to knit play. Um, and and control possession of the ball that the best Manchester City sides have had. So there there are areas where you can see that from a personnel perspective that they they've dropped off the the best Manchester City sides in the Premier League era, and and also where you know we're a long way into Guardiola being a Premier League and Manchester City coach. So everyone knows the way that they want to play and they want their opponents to play. Um, And generally opposition, including high quality opposition like Manchester United and Tottenham, will now go into games saying, sorry, we're not going to make it easy for you. We're going to set up in exactly the way you don't want us to play. And we're going to use our quick attackers to take advantage of your, your high line. In this particular game, Guardiola decided, "Well, okay, well, I'm not going to give you a high line to play with," and then you end up with a a, a not entertaining game with a not a lot of opportunities, um, and a result that, as I say, in percentage terms, probably should have gone Manchester City's way. I think I don't think his strategy was a bad one; it was the it was the implementation from the forwards, but um, leaving them further off off the top uh, and. Uh, And making it more difficult for them to get that title back from Liverpool, which is if, you know, from Guardiola's own mouth, that was the aim for the season. He wants to avoid saying Champions League is the target. He's always said the most important thing is to win the Premier League title. Um, And, uh, you know, they don't look like winners at the moment, do they?
1: No, they don't. Um, I think the inconsistency, as much as anything, is, was damaging them. But um, again, it, it still looks a very open um, title race uh, most of the teams have not been separated. Uh, I think this time last year, Duncan, we were talking about trademark Liverpool's title to lose. Um, and it's certainly not the case this year that we've got that kind of situation. So um, that Tottenham Liverpool game on Wednesday night will be very interesting. Always lovely to say a big hello to um, a good friend and uh, certainly a very avid listener of the Transfer Window podcast, that is Indy Boonan. And Indy's come up with, I think, a a very interesting um, little point of view here, Duncan, which we'll finish off today's pod with, because he's asked, should we get some credit for Southampton? I had them as dark horses for the European League places and was laughed at. And I think Ralf Hussenhattel is a wonderful coach. Well, Indy, I hope you'll be laughing at the bookies if you had dark horses and a bet on Southampton because uh, you might well be at the end of the season. Personally, uh, Duncan, they remind me a lot of Leicester City in the way they play. Uh, they've got an uh, inner player of Danny Ings, uh, someone who can get in behind and run in behind defences but also has a great instinct in the 18-yard and 6-yard box uh, for when the ball's going to come across goal to him. You've got Ward Prowse, Who's free kicks and delivery both in scoring goals and in making assists have been incredible and um, I think we should mention as well Theo Walcott back at his old club after 12 years having a real proper impact as well scoring making assists looks like he's enjoying his football again which is something uh, he certainly wasn't doing in his latter couple of years at Arsenal and also at Everton for a lot of the time there as well Um. Do you think uh, Indy's right? Do you think they've got a chance of making Europa League places come the end of the season? I think
0: they have a a chance of of making it if they can um, keep their best players on the pitch um, in this open season um, that we have and in the condensed season where they're not playing European football themselves. So they've got that advantage of playing less games than their opponents. I I think Indy's right to credit and, and what they have is, is something which we, we hear uh, commentators talking about a lot these days is identity. You don't have any problem identifying Southampton's identity. Uh, they've a very defined system. They have a very aggressive um, and entertaining way of playing because they, they press and harass opponents all the time. You know they're going to try and get the ball back as quickly as possible and you know they're trying going to gonna try and get us forward as quick as possible. They have talents in their team like Ward-Prowse um, who are capable of scoring and creating um, from anywhere in that final third. Um, I, I'm remembering a, a podcast probably in Hassan Hasenhutl's first season where we, uh, I think we predicted that he would be the, the next Premier League manager sacked and I've got to say we got that one badly wrong because <laughs> because what what he he took a lot of um, risks in the way he started at Southampton he inherited them at a difficult time but he had a coherent managerial system and style of play that he wanted to implement and he just stuck with it and with it and with it regardless of bad initial results um, until
1: it delivered dividends. So that's your questions answered for this edition of the Transfer Window podcast. It just leaves Duncan and I to give you our heroes and villains of the last few days in football. I'm going to let Duncan go first because he's going to give you the villain. Uh, villain of the week would be Benfica coach
0: George Jesus, um, who was asked as many, many coaches in European football and prominent coaches in European football have been asked about what happened in the Paris man um istanbul Sheher, um Champions League game where both sets of players walked off the pitch after the fourth official was believed to have made racist remarks to um, Istanbul's assistant coach, Pierre Webo. And uh, George Jesus' response was... I don't know exactly what happened, but these days, all this about race, racism is very fashionable. These days, anything you say against a black person is a sign of racism. And the same thing to a white person is not a sign of racism. It's a wave that is taking over the world. But maybe there was racism because I don't know what they said to that, to that coach. Um, so I'll just leave that there. And you can make your own judgment on whether Jesus deserves his
1: villain of the week for, for that commentary on that incident. He, he deserves it just for the lack of logic uh, he, he admits he has no he admits he has no information or knowledge but then gives his opinion anyway <laughs> um, quite <laughs> indeed uh, my hero of the week um, has sadly passed away and that is former Liverpool France Aston Villa PSG Lyon manager uh, Gerard Houllier, uh who was to everyone who knew him uh, even just a little bit, never mind well, uh, a lovely, kind, intelligent, humorous man um, who always, always treated you with respect and gave you time and uh, I had many, many uh, wonderful experiences in his company uh, and I feel privileged for that and uh, I'm very sad uh, to hear of his passing at 73 this week. Um, one example. Uh, of our meetings was at Hampden Park prior to the 2002 Champions League final between Real Madrid and Bayer Leverkusen um, when we were sitting in the home dressing room um, and he was very kind to give me some time for an interview, even though he wasn't really there to be interviewed. And uh, during that time he said to me that um, Danny Murphy, who was a player of his at Liverpool, obviously, uh, could well be England's Michel Platini, um, at which point, without being disrespectful, I I thought, this guy really loves Danny Murphy, if he's going to make that comment about him. Because I don't think anyone else will look at Danny Murphy and think that he could be England's Michelle Platini. Um, but I've since heard Danny Murphy talk in uh, such loving uh, tones about Gerrard uh, that I can understand um, that there was also a very strong bond between the two men. But as I said, such was Gerard's generosity. Um, he made lots of people feel like that. Uh, and, you know, it was always the most courteous and as I said, um, charming and humorous as well. So um, adieu Gerard and um, rest in peace. Are, are we sure that
0: um, Gerard wasn't predicting that Danny Murphy would become England's answer to Platini in, in being the UEFA president going forward. I mean, he is a very bright
1: guy and he's, uh, he's got a lot of good ideas about football, Danny. You know what? I don't think... I've certainly never told Danny that story. So maybe we should tell him and see if he fancies UEFA president. <laughs> you never know. Um, listen, if you liked what you've heard today, and we know that thousands of you do, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. Uh, You can subscribe to the Transfer Window podcast on YouTube. Please turn on all your notifications and you'll learn straight away when the next one has been published. If you want to join the discussion with us there or uh, on our social media platforms, where we are at Transfer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. That's, of course, where you send your questions for a podcast like today when we answer everything we can and many thanks to our listeners today for sending in those questions and for those whose questions weren't in the podcast as well please don't give up because as you know we love engaging with you if you want to contact us directly on twitter then duncan is at duncan castles i'm at garbo sj and we look forward to hearing from you and indeed to having in the next podcast on friday until then Stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.